I'm Prime Minister Boris Johnson and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple with Hannah Young, Consul General. So Colin Callender is a TV, film and theatre producer with a hugely impressive track record on some of the most popular and iconic productions of our time. He is currently the CEO of Playground Entertainment, a film and television production company which he founded in 2012, successfully bridging the UK and US markets. Colin was one of the leading forces behind the British independent production sector at the birth of Channel 4 and played a central role in HBO's unprecedented success that helped transform the entertainment landscape, setting new benchmarks for film and television production. We don't have time to do justice to the many loved shows overseen by Colin over the years, but needless to say that under his leadership, Playground Entertainment alone has been awarded 16 Emmy nominations, 26 BAFTAs, 10 RTS nominations and 12 Golden Globe nominations, including a Golden Globe and BAFTA win for Best Miniseries. Colin has also won Tonys for a number of stage productions, including the critically acclaimed mega hit Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which I think won a record-breaking nine Olivier Awards and six Tonys. Most recently, Colin has produced a new adaptation of All Creatures Great and Small, based on the iconic novels by James Herriot. And the British Consulate New York was proud to partner with him and some of the actors from the show earlier this year to talk about the importance of the agriculture sector in the UK and US. Colin, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. Well, thank you for inviting me. Delighted to join you. Um, I wonder if you might start by telling us a bit about your career journey and how you came to New York. When I was at college, the, Britain was hit by the oil crisis and there was the three-day working week, not dissimilar, it was a sort of crisis not dissimilar in scale to, not the same of course, to, to what we'd just been through with the pandemic. And my father was a man in his 50s at the time and many, he like many of his colleagues who uh, had, had gone through World War II, had expected that their careers would be uh, a pretty straight trajectory and that they would have a job and they would have a job for life and that they would retire at the age of 65 and that would be it. And of course, with the three-day working week, which decimated good part of the uh, um, uh, commercial sector in the UK, um, he suddenly faced change in a way that he'd never faced change before. And I was at college at the time and I realized that facing change and embracing change was going to have to be something that was right at the core and the center of my professional life. I'm not sure I was as articulate about it at the time, but I, I sort of intuitively understood that, that um, this was something that I was going to have to deal with. And my career has, to a large extent, been um, impacted by change and taken advantage of it. So I was around at the beginning of the independent growth, of the, the birth of the independent television sector in the UK with the, with the arrival of Channel 4. Um, as you say, I, I went to, I joined HBO um, when pay television in America um, was creating a sort of seismic change in the landscape of, uh, of American television and by extension television over the, all around the world. And then I left HBO at a time when the streamers were coming on board, where there was another sort of seismic change happening within the television and film industry. 
And I realized that there was another opportunity to, um, as a producer, to take advantage of the new landscape. And so my career has, has very much been a, a career that has taken advantage of the inflection points in the television and film industry and, and um, sort of surfed with them, so to speak. Um, and it's, um, it, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, uh, one of the things that I did after leaving HBO was produ start producing plays, um, which I'd always wanted to do, but never had the opportunity to do. Um, and um, Nora Ephron's play, Lucky Guy, um, with Tom Hanks making his stage debut on Broadway was the first play that I produced. Wow. And it sounds like you've, you've effectively been at the cutting edge of those moments. What, do you consider yourself a bit of an entrepreneur in that sense? How do you spot the creative moment to then jump into something new? I, I've certainly embraced the notion of um, thinking out of the box and looking at different ways of doing things. And I've loved doing that. And um, when, so, so I've enjoyed sort of breaking the rules. And it's something that's, I think it's something that's made quintessentially British actually, it is sort of, so, sort of not necessarily accepting the status quo or accepting the conventional way of doing things. And what certainly as a Brit in America, um, uh, I think you have a sort of different point of view about the world. I think you see the world sometimes living in America as an outsider and sometimes as an insider. And so you, you can tend to see things over here in America in a way that differently from Americans who were born here. And, and so I've enjoyed that, um, that tension between being an insider and being an outsider. And I'd quite like to explore a little bit more about your experience in um, the UK versus the US. But um, just on New York itself, can you, can you tell us a little bit about your time here, maybe the first time you came here, why you've stayed for so many years? Well, I first came here in my early 20s and um, I had been working at Granada Television in England, straight out of university. Well, actually, no, before I, after I graduated, I went to work at the Royal Court Theatre in London. Mm. Um, and then uh, as a stage manager, I was earning 20 pounds a week um, and the actors were earning 18 pounds a week. Um, and um, Granada Television, back in those days had a training scheme where they would hire graduates and sort of induct them into television. And I uh, joined Granada in that capacity and spent two or three years there. And there was talk about the early days of Channel 4. And I decided that I wanted to go to America to understand how um, independent production worked in America. So what I did was I took some Granada notepaper um, and I whited out from my boss, I whited out his name and I wrote in my name and I went to a typing bureau in Times Square. And this was before computers um, and even before um, IBM Selectric typewriters. So I had, and I had a bottle of, of whiteout and I wrote letters to about a hundred American presidents of the networks of the studios and I wrote letters to and I pretended that I was on a secondment from Granada to do a sort of uh, a, a work study on American television and I sat in this typing bureau for days on end um, writing these typing out these these letters and having to correct them with with, with whiteout and I sent them out and I ended up seeing everybody and I saw the president of ABC, NBC, CBS, 
um, hosts and hosts of people. And um, I then was living in LA and I got a phone call from Sir Dennis Foreman. And Sir Dennis at the time was chairman of Granada. And he said, I, Colin, I, I think you and I need a chat. And he asked me to go and meet him at the Bel Air Hotel in Beverly Hills, which was a very grand, or is a very grand hotel. And he said, he said, look, old boy, he said, um, I'm pretty impressed with what you've done, but you better stop it right now. No more letters to the presidents of the networks or the studios pretending that you're working for Granada um, and just stop it right now. And he was very gracious about it. He was very funny about it, but I did. But by that point, I had met everybody and I had really learned um, from the, I, I, I'd really had access to the whole creative community in America, in film and television, and really learned about how the television industry worked um, over here. And, um, and then I came back and it was the, uh, it was the early day, it was Channel 4 was about to be created and um, Nicholas Nickleby, which I produced for Channel 4, was actually contract 001. Um, the man who ran Channel 4 at the time was a man called Sir Jeremy Isaacs, and he was, oops, uh, he was with a man called Paul Bonner, and the two of them had one office, at the IBA on the old Brompton Road. They, I think they had one secretary, and that was about it, um, when I went in and sold them Nicholas Nickleby. So that was, uh, um, it was fun. Oh my goodness, that's an incredible story. I love your sort of, the gumption of using the, uh, <laughs> the Granada um, notepaper as well, that's brilliant. Um, and you have a company spanning both the UK and the US industry. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about the similarities and the differences and you know, how the audience differs in their appreciation of your work? You know, uh, one of the characteristics of my career has been sort of bridging the UK and the US market. I had this company called, in London called Primetime Television, which, is, which produced Nicholas Nuthaby. Um, and um, I met at the Cannes Television Festival, a man called Michael Fuchs, who was the real sort of genius behind the birth of Home Box Office. And at that time, Home Box Office's ambition way outreached its financial um, uh, pockets. And, uh, and they, HBO in those early days, needed to find um, co-producers, some co-finance out of the UK to help them produce some of their shows. And I turned out to be the uh, British co-producer of choice for HBO in those early days. Um, and then eventually having made a number of shows for HBO um, and British television, they asked me to come over to New York. And I remember at the time I had been producing a show called The Last Resort with Jonathan Ross. Um, it was Jonathan Ross's first TV um, show. It was for Channel 4. It was the first live late night chat show of British television. And for those of those in the audience or listening who are old enough to remember, it was a pretty sort of riotous show. And we had things like one-legged jugglers on it. And we had people that swallowed goldfish and regurgitated them. And we had people that sort of um, did the most absurd and crazy acts on the show as well as interviews. And it was a massive success. And I remember cutting together a sort of showreel of the show with all these absurd, crazy acts. Um, and uh, I was very proud of it. And I flew to New York and I, when I, when I got this job at HBO and I, I sat in the office at HBO and uh, I remember calling some people in, say, you've got to see this. this, this show is so funny, it's just hysterical. 
And I remember playing the video of the trailer of the show and realizing it wasn't funny in New York at all. If no one laughed and I looked at it and I thought, what was, I mean, what, what happened? This was funny in London and in New York, it's like pathetic. It, it was just like silly. And somewhere between London and New York, it changed. And, and, the, and I realized then that the context in which you see shows um, and which you see, whether it's a play, whether it's a film, whether it's a television show, um, is impacts how it plays. And it was a very salutary um, experience because I realized that you know things that work in England don't necessarily work in New York, and and, and of course, and of course, the same is true vice versa. Um, but I, 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 what I have done um, is uh, really a sort of embraced the Britishness of the work that I've done. And even though the Last Resort videotape didn't work, um, obviously, you know, a lot of the stuff that I've done out of the UK has been immensely successful, uh, and the first of which was. Nicholas Nickleby, the, the Royal Shakespeare, you know, the television version of the Royal Shakespeare's nine-hour play. Mm. And I mean, do you? Um, how much do you see your role as sort of bringing Britishness to a U.S. audience? If that makes sense, is there something about sort of bringing some of those traditional stories and updating them and taking them into a different audience? That totally, totally. I mean, I, I, I um, uh, you know. The, the truth is that, and this is this is this is significant given the, the new entertainment landscape. Um, for all the talk as that there is about um, the need to compete in the global marketplace in television and film, the truth is, over and over again, the most successful British shows in America, British movies, music, whatever, have been things that are quintessentially British whether it's Upstairs, Downstairs, whether it's Benny Hill, whether it's Monty Python, whether it's, whether it's Downton Abbey, whether it's My Nicholas, My Nicholas Nickleby, or most recently, All Creatures Great and Small. Um, what these shows are is they're, they're sort of counter-programming to what the mainstream studios and, and networks make in Hollywood. And they, they uh, serve, they, they provide the audience with programming that you can't find in America. There's an enormous appetite for that sort of programming over here. Um, and it, it's, the audience's appetite for it is pretty insatiable. And, and I mean, you've done that across stage, film, television. Uh, how, do, how does one excel in all of those? I mean, you know, it's, it's incredibly impressive what you've done. How, how do you flex to those different genres? Um, you know, at the end of the day, they're all the same. They're all about the same thing, which is storytelling. Um, it's all about, you know, storytelling and, and storytelling well told. Um, and um, I, I think that it's also about, to some extent, um, and not pandering to the audience. It's about um, following um, uh, your gut and, and, and sort of telling stories that I want to tell. And um, I think that when you start trying to second guess what does an audience want, um, uh, you, you start, um, you make choices for the wrong reasons. And I think that 
it, and that was a lesson that I learned very early on in the in England. It was a lesson that um, you know when I worked for Granada back in those days, it was run by two men: a man called Sir Dennis Foreman and another man called David Plowright. Both of them were really smart, brilliant men, and um, they. Granada in the, at that time had guaranteed access to ITV. They had a series of slots that they knew they could fill and they would fill with whatever programming they decided they want to make. And their view was make the great programming and the audiences will follow. Make the great programming, the audiences will follow and money will follow. Mm. But chase the money and chase the audience and you won't make great programming. Mm. And that was a really early lesson at Granada and when we, um, uh, it, and we, we frankly and rather shamelessly adopted that strategy at HBO in those early days, in the, in the Camelot days of HBO, when, we, when HBO really was the new guy on the block and was breaking all the rules, we said then, let's make great programming. Let's, and let's make great programming that nobody else would make. And the audiences will come and they'll find us. And that's what we did. And um, I, I think, so, so I think just following your gut, you know, trusting your judgment um, and uh, not trying to second guess what the audience wants is the way to go. I mean, no, the truth of the matter is, if you'd done a poll of consumers, no one would have told them, told you they wanted a, an iPhone. You didn't know you wanted an iPhone until the iPhone came around. And, you know, nobody, um, when we did The Sopranos or Sex in the City, or when we did Angels in America or any of those shows at HBO, that wasn't the result of an algorithm. That wasn't the result of, of, of data analytics. That was a result of us finding something wonderful that we thought nobody else would make and that would actually work. And um, I've, I've, I've lived by that. Um, I've adopted that strategy through everything that I've done. Um. And it's wonderful to talking to you. I'm having these nostalgic memories of uh, everything that I've grown up on, uh, grown up watching, I should say. Um, and um, something that uh, we talked about a lot on this podcast is uh, diversity and inclusion and how we can diversify the arts and culture industry. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about uh, how one can bring greater diverse representation on screen and behind the screen, which is just as important, and perhaps how what you're doing at Playground Entertainment to um, to reflect that agenda. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it was interesting because um, in, in going back to HBO for a minute, in in the sort of Camelot days, um, we recognised two things. Um, one is that there was a whole range of programming that wasn't being made by the mainstream and that if we were going to make programming that was worth paying for that we actually had to tell stories that others wouldn't tell and then and we realized that if we're going to do that you can't have the same old people telling those stories you've got to find different voices to tell those stories and ironically where did we learn that lesson from channel four because when Channel 4 was created, Channel 4's remit right at the outset in the UK was one, to create a new independent sector and, and, and create you know, a, 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 a self-sustaining independent production sector. But secondly, to serve underserved audiences. 
And one of the things that Jeremy Isaacs understood back in those days was that to, under, to serve underserved audiences, you had to get producers and creative talent from those audiences to create those programming, that program. Now, interestingly, we at HBO um, and, and, and Channel 4 in those days was very bold in that regard uh, and, was very, uh, and you know, created a whole range of different types of programming um, that was very diverse. What's happened over time is that got lost. And what happened over time was as the Channel 4 or certainly HBO became more and more successful, that that sort of ambition to speak with to diverse audiences with diverse voices somehow got upstaged by the need to make money and other more pressing imperatives. What, what's happening now is long overdue. And in terms of what we're doing at Playground, um, you know, we have a, a series production right now that, that has a young um, Muslim woman center stage uh, um, as the central character, a series called Dangerous Liaison, which has um, authentically a black char character center stage. A and we had a very interesting experience on All Creatures Great and Small. We, ha we had an open casting for one of the roles uh, and an actress came in who was a, a black actress and um, she started telling the story of how she ended up in Yorkshire and how her mother had come um, to work. Um, uh, she'd come actually with a theatre company and she'd ended up working in service and her, she had fallen in, uh, in love with, with somebody else that worked at the house she lived in. And when we heard that, we built a whole story around that character and it was in the seventh episode of All Creatures Great and Small um, and the character, uh, the actress, um, we, we built her the story into the script. But what was really shocking was the acrimony and the ugly, ugly stuff we got online about it all. Um, it was really ugly and it, you, you realize, you know, what, how far we still have to go. When we cast, when we cast Hermione in Harry Potter, um, with a black actress, with Noma Domazwayani. I mean, Noma got the ugliest, ugliest sort of stuff on social media. Um, and um, you do realize that, that we, we have a massive journey yet to go. I mean, this just, just happened with the, as we know, with, with the British soccer team, uh, you know, coming out of the, uh, the European Cup. So, uh, I mean, uh, we in the industry have a, have a very, real responsibility, represent the, the full range of diversity, you know, it, you know, in our audience on screen. It's, it's a major priority of ours. You've been nominated for um, and received just about every entertainment award uh, in the industry. Um, what, have you, what, what are you most proud of when you look back over your career? What, what, are, what are those moments that have really stuck out for you as defining points? Um, you know, um, I, I think probably it was winning the Emmy for Nicholas Nickleby. Um, Nicholas Nickleby was my first um, credit as a proper producer. Um, it was nine hours of Charles Dickens. Um, it was, uh, and we were up against um, that year, the Thorn Birds with Richard Chamberlain and Winds of War with Robert Mitchum. And we had nine nominations. And back in those days, the 
a mini-series was the big category in the Yemenis. Now it's the series, but in those days it was the mini-series was the big category. And as the evening progressed, it was in this big hall, this, this place in, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. As the evening progressed, one by one of our nine nominations got knocked down. So by the time we came to the end of the show, and it was being hosted by um, uh, Eddie Murphy, and uh, it was heard by, as it came to the last award of the show, I, I had sort of turned off. I had assumed this was gonna be, you know, Thornbirds or, or Winds of War. And um, they read out the winner and I just sat there. And then suddenly I saw the cameras on me and the, my date sort of started digging me in the ribs and said, they just called your name. And I sort of was completely uh, taken back. I can, uh, so I, I sort of walked up there sort of dazed. Um, and then I'd, I was 20 something, I can't remember how old I was. And I thought, I, I really was quite surprised by the whole thing. And I remember coming back and um, people saying to me, oh, you, you won an Emmy for your first show for Nicholas Singman, you know, you, you know, that would give you entry to everywhere. And I remember saying to people, no, you don't understand. Um, Hollywood's about the Thornbirds and the Winds of War. I produced this funny little period Charles Dickens piece. I'm ever going to be known as the man that did this strain, this nine hours of Nicholas Nickleby on a stage. And I didn't do the Winds of War on Thornbirds. And I said, I'm going to be pegged as the, the man that did Nicholas Nickleby forever. And I'll never be able to get out of that. And so um, amusingly, I decided, well, you know what? I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to embrace the fact that that's what I'm known, I might be known for. And, and I, I think that's, uh, that's indeed why I have um, stuck to my guns in terms of um, making a lot of shows that that have that, 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 that are very British in their origin. Yeah, and uh, you were also knighted, I think, in twenty sixteen. I was. Yes. Um, what What did that mean to you? That probably meant more to me than any award I've had, um, and. Uh, Sadly, neither my mother nor my father were, the, were around. Um, they both passed away by then. Um, and um, I, um, I, you know, being knighted, because it wasn't about one particular show, it was about a body of work. Um, and it was, I was knighted for my contribution, British television, film and theatre in America. So it was very much what we're talking about. So I, I was, I, I was deeply moved by that, and um, uh, uh, my, my young daughter um, thought that I had met Prince Charming, uh, not Prince, not the Prince Charles. <laughs> and, and, I mean, he is for many people. <laughs> <laughs> and when I got my CBE, my 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 oldest daughter thought I got my ABC. <laughs> they ground so, the children, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was it was it was as it was as meaningful as anything that's happened in my career. It really was, um, uh, I, I was very, very moved by it. Well, it was richly deserved. Um, and finally, what's next for Playground Entertainment? What should we be looking forward to? Well, um, we, we, we're, you're gonna look forward to the return of All Creatures Great and Small, the second season, um, which will be playing on Channel 5 in England in the autumn and in uh, our Masterpiece Theatre in the new year and uh, we're about to go into production with the series three of that. Um, and then um, this big um, 
thriller that with that Peter Kosminski has written. Peter Kosminski um, directed Wolf Hall, and it's it's the story of a Russian cyber attack on a British election, um, and that will be on Channel Four next year and on Peacock in America, and it's with Mark Rylance and uh, uh, Simon Pegg from um, Mission Impossible. And then the third thing is um, uh, Dangerous Liaison. Um, it, it's it's um, a series based on Dangerous Liaison um, that will um, uh, be on television in, in summer of next year. And then of course, all the Harry Potter plays um, in London, God willing, hoping that if we, we, the, 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 the fourth wave doesn't hit us too badly, London, New York, San Francisco, um, Australia, um, and then a stage production of The Shining, the Stephen King book, um, with a director called Eva von Hove, um, which we're going to open in London um, in spring of next year. So um, there's a lot going on. Wow, that all sounds incredibly exciting. Colin, it's been an absolute privilege talking to you. You uh, have such a hugely impressive career uh, and are continuing to make uh, such an impact here in the US and in the UK. Thank you so much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. Well, thanks for talking. It's been a lot of fun.